Welcome to the Inez Franklin Teaching and Sermons Podcast. Inez is a teaching pastor, public speaker, and founder at trochia.org. Learn more about Inez at www.inezfranklin.com. We hope this teaching brings you guidance, connection, or tools as we seek God together today. Enjoy the teaching. Corinthians chapter 13 verse 4 through 8 and we're going to read this every week for the next four weeks love is patient love is kind love does not envy it is not boastful it is not arrogant it is not rude it is not self-seeking it is not irritable and does not keep a record of wrongs Love finds no joy in righteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Read this last line with me. Love never fails. That is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The Bible's entire narrative, when you read it from beginning through to the end, is all about love. In fact, the way that God describes himself in his word is love. It says in 1 John chapter 4 that God is love. You know, I like to memorize scripture, and sometimes it's not so easy, right? Some, some passages are really long, or you might memorize them, and I got it down really good, and then I start memorizing others, and the one that I memorize is now like, I forget it. It's never gone because the word is hidden in my heart, and I know that at the right time, God will remind me of it. But there are certain passages that are really easy to memorize and to keep front and center all the time, and this is one of them, right? God is love. That's out of 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. And the pinnacle of the entire biblical story is God's love for us. And that's because it is most important to us. Love is perhaps as important as the very air that we breathe. Love is essential for our well-being. There was a movie in 1999 that came out called Magnolia. Anybody watch that movie? Don't go watching it. It's kind of disturbing. It's a three-hour movie, a sad story, actually, of sadness and loss. It's a story about lifelong bitterness, about the damage that children experience Uh, by perhaps the actions of the parents, and about people, adults, trying to destroy their lives. Why do I tell you about it? Because at the end of the movie, the main character is dying of emphysema, and he's there with his caregiver, and he starts to tell him a love story. He tells him about the first time he set eyes on his wife, Lily. He said she was like a porcelain doll, absolutely beautiful. And he pursued her and got married to her, and they were married for 23 years. He said, the love of my life. But then he confessed that he was terrible to her, that he had affair after affair after affair after affair, to the point where Lily had to just leave the marriage. And he said in his dying words, he said this, he says, my biggest regret, the biggest regret of my life is that I let my love go. He says, he cries out, he goes, love, 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 what have I done? 
I remember being 36 years old and watching this movie, and it, it ends so peculiarly. It, it's raining in the last scenes, and literally frogs come down from the sky at the end of this movie. And it just stuck in my mind, not only that scene, which was weird, but it stuck in my mind, this, this concept of love. And I think the reason why they had this strange ending is because for once, this man got beyond his circumstances and sought something greater than himself, love. As we go into this series, the next four weeks, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 13, and we're going to talk about love. And it is my heart, my desire, that we would, we would really look at love through the eyes of God, that we would have an understanding of love that is greater than we've ever experienced before. Paul writes to the Ephesian church. He says, I get down on my knees, and I pray that you would be able to grasp and understand how long, right, how wide, how high, how deep is the love of God, and that you would be rooted and grounded, bless you, <laughs> rooted and grounded in God's love. So important it was for Paul that we would understand God's love, and that's my desire for us. So let me start this time in prayer. Father, as we look into your word and we seek to understand your love, I pray that you would be the one to speak to us, spirit to spirit, your mind to our minds, your heart to our heart. Father, we come perhaps tired and weary. Some of us may be joyful, some of us struggling. We come with different needs, but you know, you know every single one of us. And so, Father, I pray that you would speak directly to our circumstances. Would you make the words you've given me powerful in our hearts? Overwhelm us with your love as we learn about you and that incredible love that you have for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So every week we're going to take a different portion of 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 4. And today we're going to take that very first little line, another super easy passage to memorize. Love is patient. You want to say it with me? Love is patient. One more time. Love is patient. We have to remember this letter was written by Paul to a church in Corinth, and Corinth was this very successful city. In fact, I think Corinth was the one who gave Las Vegas its tagline, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. And in this city, which was Gentiles and Jews and, and all kinds of things went uh, in Corinth, it's a church planted by Paul himself. And this church had sort of lost its way. And Paul writes this letter to try to correct them, to recenter them on what's important. This chapter, chapter 13, is the, what they call the love chapter. Often you will hear these passages, the ones we just read, read at weddings. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's, it's beautiful. It's an incredible expression of love. But Paul did not write this chapter for a wedding. He was writing to a church who had forgotten the most important aspect of what they needed to be and people that were supposed to be loving. He starts in chapter 12 telling them about the gifts of the Spirit. And this church had a lot of gifts of the Spirit. But when he gets to chapter 13, he says, the greatest of all gifts is love. If you lack love, you lack everything. 
And he ends in chapter 14 talking about these gifts that we should seek above all else. We should seek the gift of love. And so when he describes love right here in this chapter, he's trying to paint a picture to them. Look at what love is. Understand how important it is, how essential it is for you to be followers of Jesus Christ. And he begins by telling them about love, not by giving them adjectives, kind of describing love. He gives them verbs. Every one of these words, when it says love is kind or love is patient, all the words we read earlier, every one of those is a verb, is an action. It's not passive. It's active. It's intentional. And this word for patience in the uh, Greek language is makrothumeo. And that word, if you translate it directly into English, it means long-suffering. Macro, big, right? Thumeo, suffering, tempering. In other words, long-tempered. The absolute opposite of short-tempered. Any short-tempered, short-fused people in the room? I'm the only one? Uh Uh-huh, sure. Okay. (laughs) The opposite of that. The opposite of being short-tempered, right? Long-tempered. A long-fuse. Paul says, love has that. That is how love is expressed through patience. And you know, patience is a challenge for us. How many of you would admit that you you struggle with patience? Some. Anybody not raising their hand? Because come on, (laughs) I want to know you. Research proves that every one of us struggles with patience. In fact, a whole field of research has been birthed to study our lack of patience. Did you know this? It started in 1950 in Manhattan, New York. This uh, owner of a building had a high-rise building in Manhattan, and his tenants started to complain that the elevators took too long to arrive. And so pretty soon, uh, it was so bad, they started to say, we're just going to leave, we're going to cancel our leases if you don't fix this elevator. And so the owner got all the engineers and said, okay, we got to solve the problem. How do we make this elevator faster? They did their study. They said, sorry, this building is pretty old. We can't make the the elevators faster economically. So, you know, you really just have to live with this problem unless you want to spend a whole bunch of money and never get the return for it. And the owner's like, okay, can't do that. So he's desperate. And one of the employees had just graduated from school psychology. He decided to watch as people were standing by the elevator and were frustrated. And an idea came to him. He says, what if we do this? We put mirrors all around the elevator, floor-to-ceiling mirrors. People love to see themselves. And if they're not looking at themselves, they'll look at other people through the mirrors. And even if they don't like themselves, they're fascinated by themselves. And sure enough, they put the mirrors, the complaints, stop. You know, they have this now to a science today. Because if you go to the supermarket, what do they have right there at the checkout line while you're waiting? That nice warm bread, which you don't need, but it's so good. You just like squeeze it. I got to buy that. And then they have magazines, and then they have the, the chocolate bars and the candy, and you're like shopping while you're waiting. You are so entertained. You're not bothered that the check register guy was like, one, two, you know, you're like, whatever, I'm fine. I got my magazine. In fact, Disney has this too, a science. Where else would you wait one or two hours for a four-minute ride? (laughs) Think about this. They have all kinds of murals and posters and things to keep you entertained. At Disney World, they have a ride uh, for Toy Story. 
And right as you're in line and you're waiting and waiting, there's all this stuff to entertain you. They even have an animatronic um, giant five-foot Mr. Potato Head. And when you walk up to it, you can talk to it. It talks back to you. You have this whole conversation. And what could be better than waiting one hour and talk to Mr. Potato Head? <laughs> They've got us figured out. We're not good at patience. And they just distract us with patience. They don't really teach us how to be patient. They just figure out a way to keep us patient so they can get what they want from us. So how can we become patient? The world's not going to teach us to be patient. Where do we learn to be patient? Because we all know that we have a struggle with it. Jesus commanded us, those of us who follow Jesus, he said, love as I love. Love your neighbor as I love you. He says, this command I give you, and this is the way the world will know that you are my followers by the love that you share with one another. It's a command. And if you put Paul's description of love to that, Jesus is saying, by this, the world will know that you are my follower. Be patient. How many of us are doing good on that one? How could we be patient? It's hard to be patient with people that we love, your spouse, right, your brother, your sister, your best friend, your parents. It's really hard to be patient with people we don't like. And people who are like, they know all of our buttons, and they push them every single time, and it's like, we fly off the handle like that. How can we be patient? The Word of God teaches us not only why we should be patient, why we can be patient, but how we can be patient. So we're going to look at two stories today. One is going to tell us why, and the other one will tell us how. For the first story, we're going to look at the story of Jacob and Rachel. Wonderful love story. The Bible is full of these amazing love stories. We're going to look at one every single week. And by the way, every love story in the Bible is made up of people who are absolutely, beautifully, recklessly broken like you and I are. And so they're not perfect, but their love story teaches us something about patience and about love. Let me tell you about Jacob. Jacob, if you have read the Bible some, you've heard it said, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So man, he's an important guy in the story, isn't he? He is the grandson of Abraham. Abraham was the man who God promised that through him a whole nation would be born, the nation of Israel. And here Abraham was an old man, and God says, you're going to have a child. And he does. He has Isaac. Isaac then has two children, twins, Jacob and Esau. And in the womb, they're fighting for who's going to come out first. Jacob, the younger one, the one that comes second, doesn't want to lose. So as Esau is on his way out, he grabs Esau by the heel. All along, that's really a picture of Jacob's way of being. He grabbed whatever he wanted. He had that way about him. By the time they grew up, Esau, who was the oldest, who would have the, the right to be the eldest son to have the inheritance from the father, Jacob figures out a way, weasels in his way so that Esau gives his birthright to Jacob. Unheard of. And then later, as the father is dying in his last days, Jacob pretends to be Esau. And then he feeds his father some food and begs him to give him a blessing. And the father gives him the blessing that belonged to Esau. Obviously, Esau wasn't too happy with his brother that day. And they separate and go their different ways. Jacob, always manipulating his way towards what he wanted. And while he's on his way, he goes by this area and he sees this beautiful moment. Angels are like, oh, here's Rebecca. Beautiful. 
I'm sorry, Rachel. Rebecca was his mom. Rachel, another R name. Here's Rachel, and he sees her, and he's like immediately in love with her, love at first sight. He's got to have her as his wife. So he goes back to where she lives and asks her father, Laban, can I marry Rachel? She's so beautiful. I'm in love with her. And he's like, sure, work for me for seven years. And so he does. He's so in love. He's patient. Of course, there's something in it for me. I'll wait. And so he waits seven years. And then he gets married, and the day the wedding comes, and there's this great feast and a huge party, and Jacob's drinking it up. Finally, I've worked seven years. It's happening. And he goes now, after the party, he goes with his wife, and he wakes up the next morning, and here's what happened. This is Genesis chapter 21, verse 25. When morning came, there was Leah. So he said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Wasn't it for Rachel that I worked for you? Why have you deceived me? Look who's talking. Laban answered, it's not the custom of this place to give the younger daughter in marriage before the firstborn. Listen, Jacob, you got it all backwards with your brother. Well, we don't do things that way here. Oldest has to be married first. Complete this week of wedding celebration, and we will also give you this younger one in return for working yet another seven years for me. Sure. Jacob has to be patient. He has to work 14 years for the love of his life. And Jacob did just that. It says he finished the week of celebration. And Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, as his wife. And indeed, he loved Rachel more than Leah. Here's a man who obviously figured out a way to deceive, but yet God still blesses him, which is, to me, quite amazing. It's not that God condones his behavior, but it shows you God's patience towards Jacob. All along the way, Jacob kept making the wrong turns, but God was with him all along. And Jacob does eventually see his wrongdoing, but, but notice his willingness to be patient and God's willingness to be patient with him. Through this story, we see that he was willing to work hard for Rachel. And I think what it reminds us is that for us to be patient, we have to see something greater than our circumstances, something higher than what we might see right in front of us. He is working hard, doing all kinds of dirty work, and all of that means nothing to him. It says it was so fast for him. Why? Because his eyes were fixed on Rachel. His eyes were fixed on the love of his life. I think God can be patient with you and me and even Jacob for all that he does because his eyes are fixed on who he is creating us to be. God is patient with us. And when we are patient, why we should be patient is because he is patient with us. And this story reminds us of God's incredible patience. Psalm 103 says this, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. Slow to anger. That's the God that we have. He is incredibly patient. He's patient for one hour, for a day, for a month, for years, for decades. Not for his benefit, but for our benefit. He is patient because he knows we need him more than we realize that we need him. And it may take a long time. I know for myself, I did not become a believer until I was 40. God was patient. 
I was doing all kinds of left, wrong turns all the way, all along the way, just like Jacob. And God was patiently with me, waiting, orchestrating, trying to get to me so that I would turn and return towards him. That's what God does for us. Where has God been patient towards you? When have you experienced God's remarkable patience for a day or a month or a year or decades? Notice how he is incredibly patient, so patient. You know, we're not so patient ourselves. We want sometimes to even twist God's hand. There's an atheist named Robert Ingersoll, and he would do these lectures to try to convince people that God did not exist. And one of the ways that he did that was right in the middle of his lectures, he would say this. He would say, I'll give God five minutes to strike me dead for everything that I've done or everything that I've said. And then he'd wait five minutes. Nothing happened. And then he would use that as a way to prove that God did not exist. Over and over and over again. You know, if I were God, I'd be like, yeah, there we go. I'm sure you who God is. You know, or, or if, if I didn't want to be too mean, I would like shoot him like close by so it would make his hair stand on end. I'm God. That's what I would do. That's not what God does. In fact, um, Theodore Parker said, did he think he could exhaust the patience of the eternal God in five minutes? God's patience is so much greater than ours. And it goes beyond our timeline. It is extraordinary patience. And I know, I thought this is a, the case in the first century, and it is, I still think, today. So often when we see our brothers and sisters be patient, we think they're, they're awesome. I mean, we might say, oh, that's such a patient person. Oh, look how patient they are. But inside we're going, fool, fool. I tell you, if I were me, I'd say this, I'd do this, right? Like deep inside, we, you know, we got our thoughts. We might admire them but we don't see ourselves doing what they do. God is amazingly patient. Paul wrote this to Timothy. He said, this is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I am the worst of them, he said, but I received mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, the most sinful person, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. It's, it's God's extraordinary patience towards my own life when I get to share my story that people can see, wow, God's patient. He's using you this way based on all you've done. God searched after you, after you, after you. You did all that. Yes, that's how patient God is. Our testimonies become a picture of God's patience towards us, towards people, towards our brokenness. Think about it. When we ran away from him, he ran towards us. When we wanted to do things our way, he gave his life for us. We are broken people, and yet he is patient with us. And if God is willing to be patient with us for a year or decades or, you know, or an eternity, we can be patient for just a couple minutes, right? We can be patient when that lady starts telling us the story that she says every single time in the most boring way, and you're not really interested, but you're like, yeah, yeah, I'm interested. You can be patient for a couple minutes. 
You can be patient behind the guy who's like, stop at the red light. He can't decide if he's going right or left and his car keeps moving. And you're like, come on, make a decision already. We can be patient for a minute, right? We can be patient when we're standing by the elevator. So just to say that the most we're willing to wait before we get a little annoyed is 20 seconds. I think we can make 20 seconds or more work compared to God's eternal patience, right? We can. And there's a good reason to, because by doing so, we demonstrate his patience towards us. Now, here's the thing. It's hard to be patient with people that we don't like, and it's hard to be patient with people that we even like and love, including God. How often is it that we start to get a little impatient with our Heavenly Father? Anybody wanted to admit it? You get a little impatient? Like, God, I got a problem. Where are you? Right? There's a story in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 11, when Jesus is traveling into the town, and while he's there, some people come to him and say, Jesus, you must come. Your friend Lazarus is ill, and if you don't come, he's going to die. Now, listen, we're told that this is a very close friend of Jesus. Every time Jesus visited Jerusalem, he would go and stay with Lazarus and Martha and Mary in their home. Very special people to him. So their expectation was like, you're going to come right away. This is a dire circumstance. You must come now. And how many times have you come to God with that kind of a prayer? God, if you don't rescue me from this, I'm definitely going to go down. God, if you don't show up in this very moment, this relationship is over. God, if you don't do a miracle, this business is down. God, if you don't do something, if you don't show up, if you don't speak, if you don't cause lightning, my God, if you don't, the cancer will take me down. My God, we need you. We need you now. Have you ever called on God with that kind of passion? And do you expect God to move on a second, like right now? Like when I tell my husband, honey, um, the trash needs to be taken out. I might say it that way. What I mean is now. He'll say, well, I thought you just, I mean, I'll do it eventually. But like we sometimes say, no, no, don't take your time. Now, God, if you don't, if you don't show up, I don't know what's going to happen. Or worse yet, I know what's going to happen. And it's not good. That's how they came to Jesus. And you know, Jesus didn't even have to move. In John chapter 4, there's a story of a man coming to Jesus desperate because his son was sick. He says, Jesus, you must come. You must come. My son is sick. And Jesus says, go home. Your son will be well. I'm not even going with you. You'll be fine. Just go. And on the way there, he finds, sure enough, the son is fine. So Jesus, all he had to do is say, guys, don't worry about it. Just go home. I'll see you there. Everything's going to be fine. He doesn't do that. Listen to what happens. This is John 11, verse 5 through 7. Now Jesus loved Martha, her sister Mary, and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he did what? He stayed two more days in the place where he was. And then after that, he says to the disciples, okay, let's go to Judea again. What? If he loved these people, he would do immediately what they needed to do. How do you respond when God doesn't answer? What's your reaction when you pour out your heart and you beg God to do something and he does nothing? Are you prone, like me, to doubt God, to question his existence, to question his power, his love, to question his wisdom, his kindness? It's not uncommon for us when we feel like God is not answering and I think this is what was happening here. Sure enough, we find out that Lazarus 
dies. And when Jesus says, okay, let's go, the guys are like, why? He's already dead. He's been dead for days. And if you go to Jerusalem, they're just going to kill you. So why go there? And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. Lazarus isn't dead. He's just asleep. Let's go. And he goes. And when he shows up, Mary and Martha fall on his feet and like, if you were here, this would not have happened. And that's what we do. We, we roll out our fists to God and like, God, if you had just done something, this disaster wouldn't have happened. And there Jesus says to her, maybe in these, he didn't say this, but I think this is essentially what he's saying to her is like, you don't know me. Because he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. I have power over life itself. I sustain life. He says, it is through me that people will not die. Those who believe in me, while they might have physical death, will not have eternal death. You don't get it. I know something you don't. I'm not surprised by this situation in Lazarus' life. I am not weak that I cannot bring him back to life. You don't know me. That's why you're upset. You just don't know my love for you. In fact, it says that Jesus wept as he saw everyone suffer because Lazarus was dead, and he brought Lazarus back to life. Four days after he already smelled pretty bad, he brought him back to life. When everything seemed hopeless, when it seemed impossible, if that's you, if you're asking God, where are you, why haven't you, if you had done, know this, his timing is perfect. He knows something you and I don't know. Oh, gosh, he knows a lot that you and I don't know. He cares for you. He doesn't forsake you. He's not ignoring you. He has the power to do something, but he looks at you and goes, my child, I cannot give you that because you don't know it yet. Perhaps I have something better. Or perhaps if I gave you that, it would not be good for you. Or perhaps you would not understand my love if I just jumped in. But whatever it might be, only God knows, right? I don't. He say, trust me. I know your pain. I am with you in your pain. You're not alone. Be patient as I am patient. Wait patiently for me, for I am with you. That's what the psalmist writes in Psalm 40, verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he turned to me and he heard my cry for help. We wait, believing and trusting that God hears our prayers and that he understands his timing is perfect. And when we can be patient with our Heavenly Father, who is incredibly patient with us, we can then be patient with others. Paul writes in all of his letters something about being patient. We just read it in 1 Corinthians. Look, in 1 Thessalonians, he says, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle, comfort the discouraged, help the weak, walk with people, right, who are struggling, and be patient with some people? Everyone. Be patient with everyone because your God is patient. Ephesians, he writes this. Therefore, I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. 
Paul calls us, be patient. You have a patient God who is patient with you. Be patient with others. Do what you can to long suffer with others. That's not the same thing of accepting abuse. Because when we are patient with others, we do it for the benefit of another person. We know that every one of us is broken, that we're going to bother each other. We're going to trigger each other's buttons. And honestly, sometimes our patience with them can help them see another way. But an abuser, we can't be patient with an abuser because we say that abuse is okay, right? So you understand the difference. We long suffer with those who are behaving poorly, with the world when it behaves poorly against us, because we have a God who long suffers with us and sees our pain and sees our sorrow. Now, here's the thing that you need to know. All of this is not calling you or me to power up and be more patient, like on our own accord, like, got it, Inez, I'm out of here. I'm going to be patient today. Got it together. You watch, man. I have this. You're going to fail before you walk out that door. Because we don't have the patience that we're being called to give. Do you remember where this chapter is in the midst of Paul's conversation? He was talking about what? Spiritual gifts. This patience we're talking about is the patience of God, a gift from God. We need to ask God to help us be patient the way that he is patient, not our worldly patience, which only lasts about 20 seconds. So we need to ask God, God, would you help me be patient? I remember when I was two years into my marriage with Jim, some of you have heard my story. This is my third and last marriage in Jesus' name. Yes. Man, I, I've been divorced twice, and God had to, like, he was patient with me, but he had to, like, come on, girl, let's get this straight. And, and I did. I married Jim, and I thought, okay, I, I accept the Lord. I'm on this journey. I'm going to make this marriage work. And two years into it, not so good. And I'm having some issues being patient with my husband. Now, listen, those of you who know my husband, he's a great guy, isn't he? He is funny. He is so wonderful. He is warm. He is kind. I mean, people love Jim. He has more friends than I could tell you, but he's not perfect. And every so often, he gets on my nerves. And I remember one of those times where it's like, oh, yeah, he was really getting into my nerves. And I, I realized, oh, goodness, if, if I love Jim with the love that I produce on my own, I'm going to fail again. I've been there, done that. And so I had to ask God. I actually prayed to God. God, would you teach me to love the way that you love? Would you teach me patient love? Would you teach me patience? And I remember he kind of gave me this, okay, go and apologize. I'm like, yeah, no way, not a chance. And, you know, I, I got a little Puerto Rican temper. It, I want to say, you know, sometimes when, I, when I'd say that I'm, I get all Puerto Rican, like, oh, come on, Puerto Rican, you know, I, I give Puerto Ricans a bad name. They're not all like me. You know I'm kidding, right? But I was like, no, I'm not doing that. But I did, because I asked him to help me, and he's like, well, didn't you just ask me? Okay. And I did apologize. And that moment in our relationship was like a switch. And both of us will tell you that that was a turning point in our relationship. We've been married 16 years now. And it just changed everything for us. 
Because for the first time in my life, I let God teach me how to love, how to love patiently. Listen, when we ask the Holy Spirit, it's a gift of the Holy Spirit to teach us to love. We will feel weak, no question about it, but the Holy Spirit is strong. When we are patient the way that God is patient with us, we reveal God's love to the world. When we are patient the way God is patient with us, we actually get to understand God's love for us. You see, taking on the patience that comes from the power of the Holy Spirit will change our hearts. Indeed, as John Jacques Rousseau said, patience is bitter, but the fruit is sweet. You have no idea what your patience might produce. I know that moment for me of being patient with my husband, even though maybe I was the one at wrong, maybe. <laughs> Puerto Rican there. <laughs> Sorry, abuelita. <laughs> it produced great fruit in our marriage. And I got to see it. Sometimes we might be patient and we may not see the fruit of it, but God does, right? And so we want to be patient. We want to we actually ask God to help us be patient. So I want to pray for us. Let's pray. Father, it's only appropriate that we begin this time of responding to what you have said to us by confession. Confessing, Father, that so often we distrust you, we doubt you, we get angry with you, we get frustrated with you, and we don't feel like you are moving in the way that we expect or desire. Father, we've put our fist up, we cry out, we abandon, we walk away from you often. We speak badly of you, badly towards you because we lose our patience with you. And I can't help but think you're standing there looking at us. Maybe you're even holding us in your arms saying, my child, I'm patient with you. I love you. You're precious to me. I have a plan. It's a good plan. I know, I know it hurts. I'm trying to comfort you. You can endure because I am with you. Don't be afraid. Don't be worried. I'm in control. I am with you. And I know you look to us with loving, kind eyes. Not frustrated eyes, not short eyes, not mean eyes, but loving eyes saying, I see you, I see I hear you. And even when you run away from me, I pursue you. Even when you curse me, I love you. Even when you're impatient, I am patient. I am forever patient. That is my love for you. That is how I express my love to you. I have good plans. I have good plans for you. Better plans than you can imagine. Better plans. And so trust me, my child. Trust me. Be patient. Experience my love, my patient love. And let me help you be patient towards others. May your patience, may your trust be an offering that sends out an aroma to the world that my love is real, that I am alive and active, that I am present even in the darkest of places. And nothing, nothing, nothing will separate you 
from my love for you. We thank you, Father. We thank you for that love. We thank you for your patience. And we rejoice. We rejoice in you today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you're the chapel, we respond to what God has said to us. We take a time to walk around this building and have a little dialogue with God. And we do this in various stations. We go to the cross of confession to confess our sins because he's patient with us. And he's already paid the price for them. We go to the offering boxes to give back from the generosity that he's given us. We light candles to remember that we have hope no matter how terrible our situation might be. We're never left behind. Our elder will be right up front, the prayer team around the room. We come and we pray with one another to help one another hold on and endure all kinds of things in life. And we take communion, the greatest picture of God's patience towards us, that while we were still sinners, Jesus Christ gave his life for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that we shall not perish, we will not die, but we will experience eternal life through him. We take the bread representing his body. We dip it in the cup representing his blood, shed for us, making us clean and new, representing his love now to the world. And then we gather again together. We don't leave the room. This is our time to be together. And we worship and we sing to our God and we thank him for his goodness. So go ahead, stand up, have a conversation with God. Go to any station in any order. Go to all and then let's sing together. Oh, God, I hope you were absolutely overwhelmed by God's love for you today. And if you haven't, I want to pray this word for you. This is from Romans chapter 15, verse 13, a word from Paul himself, a prayer for us. Next week, we're going to look at the fact that love is kind. And so we want to leave here just remembering the two things we learned today, that God is love and that love is patient. And here's a word of prayer. Put out your hands to receive God's blessing. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe, so that you might overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Go in God's grace and God's love. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening. Make sure to learn more about Inez Franklin at www.inezfranklin.com. You can help share these teachings by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and sending this episode to a friend. Make sure to follow Inez Franklin on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and more, where she is engaging with the community and inviting us to participate with God and his work together. Thanks again.